Uh, Christian, you're not going to be able to keep eating things and. Sorry, yeah, exactly. Stop. That's the... definitely going in. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Get up. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to. <laughs> okay. uh, the joys of domestic bliss. That's right. It is joyous. There are over 31 million seconds in a year. How many of those precious seconds do you spend listening to music, binging the latest series, reading poetry, consuming art and media on a broader scale? In this series, I, Stefano Flavoni, am joined by the top artists of our time to discuss the method of our madness. As Miles Davis once said, don't play what's there, play what's not. This episode essentially needs no introduction. There's little that can be said about Julia Bullock that hasn't already been said much more eloquently elsewhere, whether in interview after interview, or in concert program bios found around the world. Whether in San Francisco Opera, or San Francisco Symphony, the Philharmonia, LA Phil, Boston Symphony, London Symphony, Berlin Phil, BBC Symphony, not to mention her not one, but two recordings nominated for a Grammy. John Adams' Dr. Atomic, conducted by Adams himself, as well as the live 2013 performance of West Side Story with the San Francisco Symphony, which is where I first heard Julia sing live. Julia Bullock has captivated. She has inspired. She has dug deep at the raw realities of human existence in her music, and of the sins of the music industry and society in her words. She's had residencies at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, UC Berkeley through Cal Performances, and countless other institutions around the world. She's one of the collaborative partners hand-selected by Esapekka Salonen to aid in bringing SF Symphony into a new era. And in a year of reckoning with the darkest parts of our collective soul, has been one of the voices to which we've looked for wisdom. It's a heavy cross to bear. Just during the day we recorded this podcast, Julia was doing at least two other panels and interviews that day. Keep in mind she balances as full a performing schedule as quarantine allows. Right now as we speak, she's in rehearsals in Amsterdam, getting back to the work. Julia is also one half of the power couple featured here on the podcast, bookending Valentine's Day. 
Last week we spoke with Christian Reif, my good friend and Julia's husband, with whom she lives in Munich. I cannot stress this enough. Julia and Christian are where they are in music because they represent the best of us. They both amplify the voice of the unheard. They both bring incredible artistry and deep work to their music. And they both set an example for all of their friends and colleagues to follow. As I've told Julia, knowing Christian and us talking constantly for the past four years has outright made me a better person. You know what she said? Me too. So first off, thank you. I understand you've been basically talking to everyone on Earth for the past couple of months. <laughs> so thank you for taking time out of your evening. Oh, come on. this is no, it's a pleasure. This is a pleasure for me, truly. <laughs> and talking to everyone on Earth, I don't know if that's a compliment or an insult. <laughs> well, listen, you're one of the people that we're all sort of looking to. So I think it's a compliment and... Maybe uh, the wake-up call everybody needed, twenty 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 one. 2021, start well, listening to certain voices well, for guidance? Hmm. I don't, honestly, it's so funny you say that, because I've also, um, yes, I've, I think I've been hyper-vocal, I, mean, I am a vocalist, um, mm -hmm. but I, I have been uh, vocal about 
the work that I do, why I'm doing it, how I'm engaging uh, with it uh, for quite a long time. But it's been so amazing over the course of, well, really, I guess since the um, pandemic began internationally, um, Mm -hmm. uh, how many other artists are, it's beyond just courage. I think there's just now more space made available and um, a willingness to listen. And I'm also so excited hearing all of these different perspectives because some, and hearing them publicly, because um, Mm. some of the conversations that I've had, um, I I mean, I'll, I'll just, I guess I can really just speak to singers, you know, mostly yeah. just opera singers, but um, um, we've talked about challenges in the workplace or frustrations, um, but never actually spoken about what changes we want to see um, mm-hmm. and how to incite them. And I love that that's how the conversation is now going, because I think the responsibility to incite change in in this field has been uh, placed on or depended on by a few individuals, but that is changing. Mm -hmm. Everyone is taking uh, responsibility for themselves and how beautiful. And also what a relief, you know, like definitely. Amen. (laughs) So I I do want to get into that deep discussion, but I want to start at the beginning actually. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) and you've listened to, the episode so far, at least a couple of them. So you know that this is, you know, it's supposed to be very organic, very natural, very non, we're a committee kind of <laughs> discussion. Because I think we've all had enough of that, mm, honestly. Mm. Yeah. Let's start in St. <laughs> let's start in St. Louis. Okay. So you went to John Burroughs High School. And St. Louis is a city of dichotomies, mm. right? Yes. St. Louis, East St. Louis, Burroughs and East St. Louis, Lincoln High, <laughs> um, and even Sumner. Mm, mm. I, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, man, hometowns, everyone has like a really, or they feel musicians in particular have a very complicated relationship with their hometown. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Like, whoever you talk to, they're either trying to escape it or they're trying to make amends with it or reconcile something or um uh or honor it in some way you know um i yeah my relationship with st louis is super complicated and complex um and it it continues to be um i think one it was it was really important when I returned to St. Louis and started singing after graduating school and giving mm-hmm. my first recital there. Um, and uh, also, I mean, I know it, even, re, even returning <laughs> um, to the Opera Theater of St. Louis and performing there, even though I felt positioned in some way, it's like we had a lot of conversations about what repertoire I was going to sing and what, you know, I I offered up a lot of different roles even that I was interested in doing. And of course, you know, we we ended up 
deciding that I would return for this premiere of Terence Blanchard's work, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, um, and with Cassie Lemons, of course, and, and Charles Blow, um, and sp speaking to the a black community experience, you know, one that was mm. unique to, to Charles. Um, but I... <laughs> I think I walked out of my time in St. Louis feeling my time in St. Louis, my time from being a child born there to then going to Eastman School of Music. Um, I felt really fractured. I felt fractured mm -hmm. as a person. Yeah. Um, some of that was just personal, um, you know, ongoings in my home. But some of that also was societal inequities and pressures and um, influences and confusion, honestly, just legitimate confusion and not being clear about what my identity was. Um, and I think my efforts in going in, or my desire to go into the performing arts was an attempt to make a reconciliation within myself. And um, I don't know if like how conscious that was at the time. I mean, you know, all growing up, you go and you know you want to perform or invest your time and energy in the arts because it's a fun community to be a part of. There's a lot of joy that comes out of it, but it's like, why do you stay in it? Um, mm -hmm. I can't. It was not all because of the joyous aspects. It's because of a, a need and. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of skirting around a little bit your, <laughs> um, no, this, totally. this discussion of dichotomies because yeah, I was feeling, I was feeling as split and segregated as that city still is. Um, yeah. and there is a lot of healing though that has happened since within that city. Um, but it, sure. yeah, but it has grown out of a lot of pain and a lot of loss. Yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard, that's just a hard reality, right? This <laughs> is a hard reality. Absolutely. Well, have you read the book Savage Inequalities? I have not. Okay, I highly recommend it. It's from the 90s. So some of the facts and information is a little bit dated. Okay, uh, Savage Inequalities. Yeah, hmm. it goes through the most underfunded and highly funded high schools and elementary schools in America and shows that we haven't gone too far from Plessy. Mm -hmm. We haven't gone too far from Brown mm -hmm. and highly recommend it because mm. I'm someone, I totally think that so much of social change needs to happen at the education level. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I, so, so it's, I mean, I, you know, so I grew up in, in Webster Groves, which um, like so many uh, neighborhoods in St. Louis and across the United States was segregated historically. Yeah. Um, and, but Webster Groves, even so Webster Groves is a very wealthy suburb in, uh, St. Louis. The decision, you know, my, my, my biological father, um, he grew up on a, on a farm in North Carolina and, mm -hmm. you know, went to Morehouse, I think it was 15 or 16, and then on to Harvard, um, uh, and then devoted his life to, um, yeah, social, social programs, um, um, and 
developing low-income housing uh, in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. If we're all, well, actually all of Eastern Missouri, um, but the his investment in education. You know, he died when I was young, but his investment in education mm-hmm. and desires have always been clear for all of his children. And Beautiful. yeah, and like my sister, my my whether it's my my older siblings, um, um, and or my sister and I and. Um, when we, when my mother made the decision to put us at John Burroughs School, you mentioned John Burroughs. Um, uh, I oddly enough know my St. Louis high school. It's so weird that you do. I was like, man, because you know, part one of the one of the jokes in St. Louis is like, where did you grow up? Um, wanting to know what neighborhood, and also where did you go to high school? Um, uh, that's like the primary question because it it. It's supposed to inform the person who's asking the question yeah. what your uh, what your financial situation is and where where you are in the class class system of St. Louis. Um, I grew up in one of those coded language kind of towns okay. too. Um, and you know, I going to Burroughs, I wore that badge with pride because Burroughs was one of the top 25 schools in America and yeah very very expensive school I look at the price tag that's that has someone has to pay in order to go there now and I'm it's like a year first year of college um and you know my sister and I could only afford to go there because we required or my my mother applied for uh, financial assistance for us um but even so it was a you know it was additional it was an additional expense um and a, and a sacrifice um but i'm so grateful for my education there uh because after you know i'm sorry i'm grateful and also really <laughs> i can shake my fist at that place um but everyone can uh who who attends there because it's it provided the if you, if you can figure out how to maneuver through and navigate that space, it was kind of like you knew how to go through almost any other part of your life. Um, it doesn't mean you didn't walk out with a lot of wounds and scars. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was very academically challenging, but it also it just encouraged um, uh, critical thinking in like an extreme way that was super positive. Everyone you were around was, you know, um, uh, a yeah a quote-unquote high functioning you know person and um had mm-hmm. parents who were really demanding of them um and and uh um yes i mean it was a privileged environment i mean it was just it was a privileged environment um at the same time though it's like with all of that privilege and the benefits that i gained it was it was still a the ratio between students of color and um, also just the economic differences. It's like that, that was w- with all of that privilege and benefit um, and fantastic um, education, it was, it was still a very tense environment. It still reflected the tension that was existing in St. Louis at that time. Um, one amazing thing, though, is that the students of color that were there, uh, you know, there, and 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 not. I mean, also the um, LGBTQIA plus community that existed there. It's like there was an investment in diversity club. Uh, I was, um, you know, we we had 
you know, diversity training in our school. I was able to go to the People of Color wow. conference uh, in Chicago, where I was like surrounded by students of color for I think four Incredible. days. You know, and and that those kinds of early. I, I didn't realize actually until this year it's like how impactful um, and influential, how influential those years of being a part of diversity club and uh, which again, even having that was a privilege in that environment. It, yeah. it was a privilege, right? Um, but I was already starting to think about equity, inclusion in, you know, starting when I was 14 years old. 13, 14 years old. Um, That's incredible. So, um, yeah, it is It is actually kind of incredible and cool. But again, even just had, knowing what that conversation was about or starting to explore it, um, that was a privilege. So, because <laughs> uh, if you're dealing with issues of survival or um, not, you know, taking just, just getting great education, you know, I, I knew I was getting a great education, so I also had space to think about other things or educate myself in more than the, you know, core classes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you got involved with Opera Theatre St. Louis quite early. My last two years of high school, my last two years of high school, yeah. I mean, I'd had some voice lessons before, um, but it was really great to then have free lessons and coachings with the um, Opera Theatre St. Louis Artists and Training Program. That's incredible. Uh, yeah, and it it was it, it it was also that was also incredible. Um, I the, the the teacher that I had there, um, she taught at Washington University. The, mm -hmm. the coach who I was put in touch there, he really is. Um, he changed the way that I started thinking about my relationship with music and and text, mm. um, and actually helped. I think he, in an hour, in our first hour of working together, he helped my synapses connect what text and music were about. Um, Beautiful. It it was, and it changed. I think it did change the course of my life, or it changed how I started to then listen to music. Because even though I was, you know, at the same time listening beginning to listen to Regine Crespin and Cecilia Bartoli and uh, Shirley Verrett, I was also listening to Billie Holiday and Nina Simone and Janis Joplin, and it, it, um, I was beginning to understand what it meant to be an interpretive artist. <laughs> um, what is the power of the word? What is the power of messaging of the music? Um, how do those things influence each other and amplify each other? So um, th those things came into my consciousness also. It's like that I, at you know, 17, 18, and I, I don't think that would have happened if I had not met those specific people who, yes, came into my life because of Opera Theater of St. Louis, <laughs> which is amazing. Beautiful. Mm. So... Back at Opera Theatre St. Louis, what, because your career and your roles have taken a really unique direction as far as where singers tend to gravitate. What were the early roles you think were suggested to you that maybe looking back, maybe you agreed with, didn't agree with? What were, what did people think your career was going to look like at that point? Mm, what did they think it was going to look like? Well, um, I, and in terms of just opera roles, I mean, we're, we're talking opera, right? Um, it's just interesting. I, I, I had to think for a second, because, or I hesitated for a moment, because the my initial introduction to 
classical music or classical Western European music anyway, um, or even American classical American music um, was through song literature. And um, so I, I think I've, and I've always carried this love for it. The world of opera uh, felt a little overwhelming and confusing to me because I, I felt like just in, in song literature alone, there's so much to process, internalize, um, metabolize, and then bring into a realization. And with opera, there are a lot of other influences that are predetermined. And I wasn't comfortable early on finding freedom and space within that. So I just remember having a conversation with my voice teacher at Eastman, Carol Weber, and just telling her like, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really comfortable in opera. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to, I, maybe it's because I, I didn't feel confident even in just how to use my voice yet, how to feel real freedom in my own expression yet. So then to take on the character of another, the voice of another and try to develop that, um, it wasn't, it wasn't comfortable. And actually, I don't think it did it very well. I don't think early on I did it very, Interesting. very well. Um, but, um, you know, when I'm thinking about repertoire, the suggestions that were given to me, I mean, I was young, right? So, um, Italian. Suzanne, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, uh, the first opera I did was Monica and the Medium actually, um, by Minotti, um, an American composer. And, and, but I was told, uh, very pointedly, it's like, you got this because you know how to act and really not so much because of your singing. And I was like, Oh, wow. and that gave me a, you know, a complex. I'm not going to lie. That gave me a complex. I think probably still does. Um, cause I'm bringing it up now at 34 years old and bringing it up. As well. um, For what it's worth, <laughs> I'm a huge Minotti fan. Yeah. And the first opera I worked on was Vanessa oh, by wow. Barbara and him. So See, I, I can relate. It's, <laughs> it's serious music. It, it is. It is. It is. And it's a great theater piece. And I, I'm, I'm glad that that was my, um, my first opera. Um, but uh, my second opera then was Susanna in Le Nozze di Figaro, uh, which was the most overwhelming undertaking. <laughs> but at, at, I can imagine. Yeah, at what, 21, 22. Um, but I was so enamored by her. And I loved listening and watching every single recording and DVD that I could find of that opera. As I was learning it, I the process of all you know, I mean, yeah, all of these recitative and the and the um, yeah, just it's she's just the most amazing character. And I really, honestly, I would love to sing her again <laughs> because um, uh, she had such power, grace, clarity of mind, swiftness, wit, and a sense, a clear sense, yeah, just a real sense of herself, despite all the other things that she was encountering. A real, she had a real grounded sense of herself, um, and also a vulnerability that she was willing to share. And it's like how, um, what, yeah, what a, what a, a beautiful character 
to have to go put myself through the paces of understanding so that I could also exercise those character traits in myself. That's beautiful. But, it, you know, so the, the opera thing, it was like, it was like a light lyric opera. That was always the encouragement. And of course it was out of, you know, one protection of my voice or just making sure I wasn't overworking my voice too much. Uh, I remember what, yeah, Renee Fleming once told me sing, she said, for lack of a better word, sing as high and words, sing as high and as light as you can for as long as you can. Hmm. Um, because the minute that you start to take on repertoire that demands more, despite your temperament, despite what you, the, the, despite what you can ring yourself through with your temperament and psyche, the minute that you have a larger ensemble to quote unquote compete with, it's you're going to put demands on your voice and you need to understand how to maintain yourself in the midst of that. And that just takes time. So um, I appreciate that there was care, of course, not not wanting to like rush me into any rep too soon. Um, unfortunately, though, I think I create again, creating this sort of complex of needing to honestly, yes, protect my instrument. I used that word before uh, and that it was something that was precious and maybe delicate. And instead of just something for me to enjoy and expose and explore. Um, so yeah, that was, that's, that's interesting. And thinking about opera with the, the repertoire that was suggested to me for other material, it was also made clear. It's like, because of the, my teacher, also the same teacher who has been very, I keep using this word influential while I'm talking to you, but she really, she it's a real word. Yeah, it is a real word. And she, but she really impressed a lot on, onto me. Um, uh, but she said very early on, it's like, because of the way that you look, you're going to be expected to sing certain repertoire, exotic repertoire. And I did not, I I knew exactly what point she was getting at. I was not ready to accept what she said, but I also felt like, all right, is this, the, I guess this is the, is this just a, a badge I need to wear? And is this the only way I'm going to be able to make it? Is this the only way that I'm going to be able to make space for myself and also differentiate myself from other singers? Um, so yeah, that sent me for another sort of identity crisis. <laughs> Um, and it I can imagine. Me, yeah, yeah. And it, like, and it took me until I was in my late 20s to really exploit <laughs> that statement and take ownership of that statement and challenge it on stage as a singer. And I'm glad that I did because that honestly, those, those initial years of, you know, the, these unconscious biases that are and I will say they're, I think, unconscious on a lot, on the part of a lot of teachers and in in, in conservatories, um, and also just when, within the, the business. Uh, these unconscious biases that come out and the messages that are communicated, particularly to women and to people of color, they start to infiltrate and in. Um, I don't know if undermine is the right word, but it, it really, there's an insidious thing that can start to happen about a young creative person who's just wanting to liberate themselves and then they can start limiting themselves. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, it's, it's very hard. It's very. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. 
in terms of liberation, mm. I mean, there's the concept in leftist sort of revolutionary political philosophy of prefigurative politics, mm. right? We're building the new world in the shell of the old. <laughs> and in an age of Corona, in an age where we're doing this with you in Munich and me here in California and all this content being digital, are we in a position to go beyond the old shell? Are we in a position to now be willing and able to tear it down and rebuild from the ground up? What do you think is the more efficacious way, do you think? Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't either. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I guess I, all I can look at is my own practice, right? Um, I have not been in the practice of ripping apart reality. And the times that I have tried to rip whatever reality I was in apart, I have um, just failed because it has not, it just hasn't for my personally, just really not been successful. Um, and I, I reference it a lot. I, I have to like, I, it's, it's, my practice is referencing the current reality that I'm in, questioning it, provoking it, challenging it, and learning from it. The desire to, yeah, tear it all apart, tear it down. I'm not against that philosophy. I just, I, I don't, again, it's just not my practice. That hasn't been my practice. So, because part of that also feels a little bit like denial and a try, like an attempt to erase, <laughs> an attempt to, an erasure I find dangerous. Mm -hmm. Erasure I find dangerous. I don't want to have abridged versions of history <laughs> around, and I don't want to be a part of trying to create a an, an new kind of history or abridged history. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that's a conservative leftist view, but I, I don't really think about those. I don't really think about the politics, my, my politics, like in terms of in that way. Um, but just cause yeah, I haven't put any energy into like dissecting that. Um, but as an artist, again, it was my practice as an artist. It's not from, I'm constantly evolving and I learn from my past and I want to maintain my lineage and continue on in a legacy. That's right now, that is what, that's how I've lived, I think up until this point, and that's what is making sense for me. Completely agree, completely understand. And I do wanna switch gears. Mm -hmm. And now I'm gonna ask you a question uh, similar to one I've asked a bunch of people on here so far, uh, but you're the first person who gets this particular one. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Julia? What's American music? What is American music? <laughs> what is American music? American music is music that is <laughs> performed, created by anyone, I guess, who has lived or is associated with America. <laughs> that is American music, and that has nothing to do with genre. Um, does it have a face to it? Does it have a sound to it? Does it have a, an intrinsic quality to it? Many, it has many, many qualities. I know, no, there's no, it's ever shifting. For me, it feels ever shifting. There are many faces, many characters, 
many sounds. It wants to evolve at a very fast rate or change frequently. <laughs> uh, it is appropriative as well. It doesn't just reference itself. But is there isn't anything intrinsic about it? Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Is there anything about, like, intrinsic about American music? Like, I'm just trying to think broader than the question of, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just try I'm trying to think like in larger, larger ideas here. What is intrinsic in it? I don't know. I guess it's not, I don't, I don't feel really different than <laughs> most, most other music, which is, which is a celebration of the human spirit and examination of psyche and space and time. But no, I don't think, I, I can't say that there's one particular, there's no one particular way that I look at American music or I say like, oh yeah, that's, that's American for composers, sure. For composers, sure. Um, but I don't know, I've, 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 that's funny. Why didn't you, I wish you had asked me this before and then I could have prepared. This was the point. That was the point. I, you don't know what's coming. No, uh, I think that's honestly a testament to your process as an artist mm. because we kind of fall into traps, right? Of, oh, this is French. It has to have harp. It has to be this kind of color. It has to have this kind of, of phrasing. Mm. Uh, mm. I actually really appreciate that answer. Mm. I do want to talk about an American composer mm -hmm. you have a relationship with, John Adams. Yeah. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's start with Dr. Atomic. Sure. So I have an interesting Dr. Atomic story. Tell it to me. So we have a connection because of your long relationship with Cal Performances. I did my undergraduate at UC Berkeley. Right. And I was originally a physics major and did research on, you know, at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory with the Department of Energy at uh, as a freshman oh my gosh. and every day in LeCant Hall at Berkeley I would pass by Oppenheimer's office mm. and on on the outside of the door is a plaque that says this is where Dr. Oppenheimer developed the atomic bomb I've been to uh, one of the retreat areas mm. where the Manhattan Project met and I'm curious Compared to Girls of the Golden West and El Nino, which I do want to talk about both of them, where does a real tragic story for Adams take place in your repertoire? How do you prepare for something that is documenting such a momentous tragedy, the development of the nuclear age, compared to... Gold, Girls of the Golden West or El Nino. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I'm just processing all of this yeah, as, you're, as you're in comparison because I think they all carry tragedy. Um, because the, the, that, the nuclear age, that was, <laughs> there was real excitement and like promise somehow. I mean, there was something they were really trying to attain and, and capture there and also preserve, right? It was about a preservation of life while knowing how much life they were going to take. And I think the beauty with John is that he, 
he leaves so much room to in his music to infuse extremes of human experience extremes of psychological uh, experience and also just historically like to he provides a space for us to reflect Americans and the world to reflect on itself and as a performer of the material it has given me permission to also go to these extreme places um, and let it register in every aspect of my voice and body. It was so interesting when we performed the piece in Santa Fe after the recording with the BBC, uh, which is my, you know, my first studio recording. And, and, you know, there's incredible record, by the way, it was a good record. I mean, on my part, there were definitely mistakes in it. Um, but I, <laughs> but, um, when we, you know, performing it on stage for the first time, John, I went to a, a lunch with John. I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, but he just said, I don't know why all these characters now, do they all just seem so fucked up? They just seem all so screwed up. And I, and he, and he didn't like, he didn't, it, it was that, it was like he did not like that we were embodying the characters in this really wrung out space. I just, I was like, oh, okay, okay. But all I kept thinking was like, that's part of what you wrote, John. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, it's in the material. It's hard to look at ugly aspects of ourselves as human beings and also then, and to see it, you know, honestly, I, I um, to see it played out in front of you, it's, it is, it's, it's hard, but that is the, importance of art it allows us to get really really close to the most challenging aspects of ourselves and our community behavior and analyze it and pick it apart i i i love singing john's music i'm a huge fan of his music i don't if i wasn't asked to sing so much of it i don't know if i would have I don't know if I would have like gotten into it because it just wasn't actually in my musical purview at the time. Oh, but I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that it did because it changed my life working on his music and so much of it has changed my life. <laughs> it's incredible and so stylistically diverse. Isn't it? And there's it's wild. Yeah. Really, really yeah. wild. I mean, I talked yeah. with Christian about this. Um, I played on the sax concerto. <laughs> I played piano on it at, with Tim McAllister playing the mm. solo. And mm. it is wild. It's Varese level <laughs> intersection of sh sheets of harmonies. And yes. I think... I don't know what happened to John after Gospel According to the Other Mary, mm. but everything sort of flipped on its head after that mm. point. Mm. Really wild music. Yeah. I, I'm i going to be really curious about what he starts writing, especially for the voice, like what he starts writing um, after, after this, especially after this year. It's like, how is his style continuing to change? Um, is he is yeah. he the person we as a society are appointing to write the Trump opera? 
I don't know. I don't know if he would ever venture that way. Although, I mean, I, I mean, he's writing. He's he's writing a new piece. Yes, about pol you know, <laughs> politics. <laughs> Anthony and Cleopatra. So we'll. Um, I don't know how much he will infuse and in <laughs> critique of Trump in that. I don't know, um, but I think John has a tremendous sense of humor, and he delights in writing music. He delights in hearing his own music, and. Um, I love when an artist, especially composers, I just, it's, it's so great when an artist likes their work and just wants to share it and hear it. I, um, it helps, it helps me like also just like, all right, I should also be delighting in my work. Um, and as I'm growing and changing, delight in that growth and change. And as my, my sound is changing, <laughs> like, um, not trying to hold on, not trying to hold on to what was before, but still evolving. I, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm as, I'm as surprised by John music, John's music as I think you are. Um, and I also, I sort of delight in like the harsh critiques of it. I don't know if he is able to delight in the harsh critiques of his music, but I find it so so funny because <laughs> well that's the thing he's like a chameleon mm -hmm. because every criticism someone could lob his way for one piece or another he writes something completely opposite right. completely diametrically opposed yeah. maybe like the next year yeah but and yet at the same time i'm always oh yes oh yeah that's john adams that's john adams like you know he definitely he has his he has his sound and um you know it's like duke, duke ellington had his sound um, Absolutely. Also incredibly diverse in what he was exploring musically, but um, Messina, I can't say quite as diverse in what he was exploring musically, but he had his sound. Um, and you can tell a mile away. Yes. And like, I, I look for that too. I like, I really, I, for composers who I am also can invest myself in uh, over the course of years or want to return to, it's like, I'm, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for that. And that, that goes for performers as well. Performances and, you know, and interpreters of art as well. I want, I want to know that they have a sound that is um, uniquely their own. <laughs> and authentic. that it's authentic and that it is, it is um, explicitly theirs. And it's coming from somewhere. Like it's not, it's not, um, it's not for show or exercise it's coming from somewhere really uh deep so your cal performances recital which i've watched it now three times really? i rewatched <laughs> re re it this morning oh my god it's one of my favorite things i've seen during all of quarantine so thank you oh. <laughs> uh, i want to go through a couple of the composers yeah yeah uh, because they're all, comp I mean, I myself have recorded Dichterliebe during quarantine too. Mm. It's immediately filled with pathos right now. Mm. But I want to start with a composer who I have a very, very, very strong affinity for, uh, Kurt Weil, and we'll also get to Richard Rogers too. Mm. He's a composer and an artist who really saw the power of social change through music yes. and theater. Yes. Ein Mensch ist kein Tier, 
a man is no animal um, is a line that resonated so much from your recital. Mm. Uh, and I have it written in every notebook I have <laughs> for this month because it's so palpable. It is so visceral. And I just wanted to know, is all music ripe for affecting change or should we gravitate towards the composers who they themselves wanted their music to be used a certain way? Hmm. Well, I think that's a choice of every single artist who's lending their voice and body to bringing a, a, a transcribed work to life, right? Um, or not transcribed, but you know, somehow, somehow bringing it to life again. I ch have chosen, again, in my own practice, in trying to understand, it's not even about rationalizing being involved in this music and loving this music. It's just, I have decided that in order to, whatever material I want to sing, I just want to make sure that it's contextualized and that my reasons for singing it are very clear, that they are understood by hopefully any person who's willing to engage with me or the material um, and that it is not a casual offering right it's a conscious offering um, most creatives that i know living and most of the creatives who i have come to know through reading their biographies, autobiographies, or even just through the repertoire itself, the writing itself, um, they're very conscious of not just the worlds or what was existing within themselves, but also of what was going on around them. And reflecting on it, commenting on it, and wrestling with it all the time, all the time. So why would I do any different? Why would I do any less? I just want to make sure that what I'm, yeah, as I, I as I'm expending energy and time, that it's with intention and focus. And if it's not, if it's careless and thoughtless or only for, yeah, escaping something <laughs> honestly it's like that's just that's i again this is my own my own practice but i don't i do not relate to that material and if if it's super if it's like if it's super superficial <laughs> why what's the commentary there why um and can that be brought to attention? Can that be reflected on? So I, I think for, for all, all the music that I'm seeking out is music that I want to return to over and over again and learn something from every single time that I return to it. And that's what makes it a classic for me. Therefore, that's what makes it classical music. <laughs> um, and that's not to do with any kind of genre. So yeah, I put that on myself. I put that on myself because that's also just my interest. 
I'm not going to, imp I wouldn't impose that on anyone else, but I do question when a lot of resources are spent and I could just say wasted when there isn't that kind of care yeah, and there is an intention that I can under, like that I can understand because I, I, I do think I can, I, I, I read rooms well, I can, I survey environments and um, at least ones that are crafted by human beings. And I, I, I do think I'm good at analyzing them and interpreting them well. So when I see that space being abused and wasted, I do question it. And honestly, it frustrates the hell out of me because it's like, yeah, I do have to ask why. Just why? Who are you satisfying? <laughs> what, is, what is this? What is this satisfying? I think this goes back to what you were mentioning before the sort of who are we serving the sort of dancing monkey routine as performers mm. we do mm. and i want to bring up a touchy subject so many opera houses mm -hmm. especially in the united states are dominated by donors and board members and controlling actors mm -hmm. who are ardently opposed to the human rights of the people who are disenfranchised in this country right now. And I mean, I'm not going to name names. We know the names, but there's an opera center named after a very large state's largest fundraiser for the 45th president of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, an organization that employs hundreds of people of color and LGBTQ plus employees every day. What's our role as artists? Are we are we still beholden to serving Prince Esterhazy? Are we 
are we in a position to finally say we need to only perform with organizations who align with the interests of humanity right now? What what do we do? So, right, like we have some choice. Everyone, again, you have to make a choice for yourself. There's some places, there's some institutions. I don't know if I can call all of them organizations because I don't think they're, I don't know who they're organizing for or on whose behalf. Um, but uh, there are some institutions with whom I want to continue engaging in conversation because I do feel that there are certain individuals within those places who are genuinely interested in making shifts. And they do not want to do it alone. And neither do I. Um, and, but you know, a shift in priority does not mean it's going to, those changes will happen quickly, right? Or at all. Or at all. So there are some institutions that I'm willing to continue investing myself in and attempting to change. Um, that goes for performing arts institutions to um, education institutions, right? Um, but there are others I want absolutely nothing to do with. One, because they have just, they have being given every opportunity to make legitimate adjustments and have not been transparent about why they have not been made or what the delay is, even just what is the delay. And I'm over it. Or, you know, there's some institutions I don't want to engage with who have proven until until those who are running those places are out and this is just only from personal experience they have proven they've shown me their true nature and colors and also their blindness and ignorance and delusional white supremacist practices they've just they've shown it so clearly I will not be able to engage with those people again, unless we had some sort of major truth and reconciliation process, you know, <laughs> really honest one. Um, but I just can't expend any more energy thinking about them because they're not creative spaces. And honestly, I've known that they haven't been. It's like the warning signs have been there. They've been there. Absolutely. You know, and it's like, this is not news. These are the the places where productions are stuck 60 years ago, let alone the social context, but also just musically, stylistically, mm -hmm. just ignoring where we've come as an artistic society mm -hmm. since, I mean, we're talking pre-1976 right. viewpoint on what right. opera staging needs to be. Right, and, and just, and what opera means? What does opera mean? Exactly, and who's it for? Yeah, so, um, you know, I've looked at the tax returns of a lot of these nonprofits and been utterly confused about the figures I've seen. Not surprised, just sort of confused. Because when I think about what opera is, when I define it for myself, literally, in Italian, work. It means work, right? Exactly. Okay. And what is the work that I do? Well, as an opera singer, you know, what is the work that I do? I am learning all the time. The work that I do is educating myself. 
My work is to learn all the time. And so when I see a company or an institution claiming the word opera, but their devotion is not to learning and education, that's not where a majority of the funds and resources are going, I really question <laughs> that place. I question it big time. So I'd love to see that shift start to happen. Here's a fun fact of an, inst of an institution, organization, however we want to define it, uh, that you've worked at. Mm -hmm. Did you know that there's a second entrance to the cafe so the big donors can invite people to dinner mm -hmm. there before a show and then not attend the show? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, they, that's where a lot of business deals get done. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, old, that's like, that's old time. Oh, that, yes, sorry. I did know that. Yeah, that's practice, right? Because it it's a social club. It was a social club. Exactly. You know? that's, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and I'm all for social clubs. I'm all for people gathering together with their communities. But it's like, again, when I look at the artists who are on stage and the, what we're aiming to do <laughs> and the transparency that we have and embody the amount of, you know, how, how we hold ourselves accountable for our work and what we present, what we share, what we offer. And if I don't see that reflected in the place where I'm working with the same rigor, that pisses me off. And no, I don't want to work there. And I don't want to be associated with it. And I don't see why anyone would want to be associated with some of these places, but I can't speak for everyone. You know, it's like, I don't have, I don't, I, I, I don't, I have a family, but I don't, I don't have a child of my own where I'm saving up for yet, yet you know? Um, I don't have house payments, like I'm still renting, you know? So I just, everyone has to make choices for themselves and sacrifices and take the risks that they feel comfortable taking. But I like to dare myself, like how, it's good to dare oneself to be bold. And also, if nothing else, this year has shown us that these plat these, the platforms we all thought we needed in order to be successful, successful, whatever that means, in order to have a career um, in the classical music world uh, as it was previously you know, defined, um, they don't. They just don't carry that much clout anymore, do they? Because they can't even keep their doors open. Yep. You know? Exactly. And unless they have a great re-envisioning of what they're doing and why, they won't have their doors reopened. And or when the opportunity comes for their doors to open, what artists are gonna be willing to walk in? Like that's the other question, right? I, and you know, I I just I I don't know. I don't know. Um so yeah, we'll see. I'm very excited to see. I, it's, and it's no judgment against you know, who's going where and what and what and what. I feel that I've been very lucky in that I haven't, my work has not relied upon the infrastructures that currently exist in order to happen. I've, I have crafted a career for myself and also just have interests of my own musical artistic interests of my own, my own pursuits that allow for a, a more flexibility and, and yeah, just being more nimble. Um, but that's also because I, 
I have a hard time trusting pre-existing structures, you know, I just do. Because the pre-existing structures, even just from early on in my life, were not reliable. You know, I losing a parent young, life having two parents and stable home life, that wasn't reliable. So it's like, I don't, it's not that I was like, I'm preparing for the worst um, and fatalistic in any way. I just, I don't want to have, I don't want to have to adhere um, and grip onto something that is failing. I honestly, it's like some of these, sorry, this, this question you asked me about, you know, as, as these organizations, as we're trying to hold them accountable and wanting to be accountable for ourselves, um, should we continue to engage with them and work with them, um, or push back? And it's like, honestly, there's some organizations, I don't think that they want to work with me either because, <laughs> because I don't think I will have an invitation extended to me. One, like our, our aesthetics are different. I don't think that we, you know, our value systems are different and it's not personal. It really does come down to business. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. But it's like, I just, my reasons for not going there are multi-tiered. the El Nino reduction. Mm. Let's talk about that one for a second. Mm. I think that's one of the most powerful performances I've ever seen. In a work that was so massive mm. and turning it into this incredible intimate setting, mm. which I think a lot of your performances do. I mean, the first time I heard you sing was in West Side Story, mm. 2013. <laughs> that was the first time I heard you and it was incredible Aww. stole the show in somewhere <laughs> that just illuminated davies hall but you managed to take a full and i mean full davies hall and turn somewhere into this really intimate almost chamber music feeling mm. and you do the same thing with el nino and then you take the inverse with your recitals where you take these small intimate musical spaces and you open them up mm. in so many interesting ways i'm curious what the role of intimacy of size and mm. sound is for your performance practice and your process. Mm. 
That's a nice question. I guess it's a big role. It does. It it's a <laughs> it plays a a big part. Um, um, when when I listen to music, um, even from very early days. I, I did it in solitude and but I also would turn on these massive speakers that my mother had and like let these recordings like physically resonate my whole body but whether it was like the psych psychedelic music of Pink Floyd or you know the more you know some some the the range of the Beatles. That's a big range. That's a big range, right? Um, or the yelling of <laughs> the intense sort of yelling of Janis Joplin, or an acapella offering of Nina Simone's. Like I still felt this immediate direction that was yeah just obviously none of the music was referencing me in my life but just it just felt immediate and close and intimate yeah intimate um and so when classical music started to open itself up it's like it was the exact same thing there was just this I listened to it in the exact same way. Um, and I am talking about like myself a lot in this, in this, um, as I'm, I'm trying to process this question you asked um, of intimacy. Um, because it's not, it's not that I, I'm not impressed by, you know, I think music can leave a very deep impression on all of us, but it's not, it's about the impression that it leaves. It is not about the, you know, the quote unquote power <laughs> that it has, you know, this, this over, you know, this overwhelming, um, overbearing power. That is not what connects me to music. It never has. It doesn't matter what I'm listening to. And in fact, the music that is about being overbearing, I find very confusing. So, um, the role of intimacy is connected to immediacy, I think. And, um, Yes, just wanting a direct line of communication. Beautiful. And you spoke about immediacy in your sort of inner dialogues during that Cal Performances recital, mm. and that being the music you gravitate towards. You started it with Hugo Wolf, who's a composer I adore. Me by too. The way. <laughs> So adore, good and so underloved. Oh, yes. So oh my God. I'm an addict. Oh. Uh, 
<laughs> but the opening words to that recital, even little things can mm. delight us. Yes. Even little things can be precious. Yes. So what are your little things? I mean, you've <laughs> dealt with a trans you've dealt with the transition to Munich mm. from hopping around. I mean, you were, you were sort of living in New York, <laughs> but like sort of sort of I was there I was living yeah. there <laughs> I went to school there I yeah. I struggled there <laughs> yes. well, me can too I, sorry can anyone live in New York that's the real question yeah, is there exactly, an extra is anyone really exactly. living <laughs> you can be ex exactly exactly and yet I love it I mean I'm nostalgic for it I wish I was there right now in the snow uh, but what's Munich been like? What What's keeping you sane during lockdown? Hmm. Uh, Munich has been wonderful. And it is in no small part because of my very wonderful husband, my love partner, my life partner, my musical partner, I'd say even. And, um, um, and yeah, he's not a little thing, but um, um, he just wow talk about just like trust and reliability and respect and being honorable and um truly precious like that is that is christian reif <laughs> you know personified that's sorry all those things are christian reif personified and uh or sorry christian reif is all of those things personified sorry that's the right ordering um and I am so grateful to be living here. Um, there's some, I, I'm not quite ready to embrace being here fully yet. I have to admit that. Um, I'm still not, you know, I'm not fluent in, in German yet. And I'm just, I'm, stalling on the complete effort of doing that and honestly I think it's because I'm having a hard time besides just the transition this this year of being f very frustrated about the United States is like also um it has prevented me from also letting go of it my attachment to it um, but at the same time, I'm so ready to just be present in this place because the conversations that are happening here, the art that's happening here, music, all of this, all of this, um, and just the life that I have here. Um, it's not that it's disconnected from the U.S. In fact, it's very much everything that's going on in the U.S. Uh, is connected to Europe. And those roots are from, those practices and roots are from, originated in this this space and it would be amazing to start ripping that apart and ripping at it hard um so are they ready for you oh i think no there are awesome as i'm saying there's like these conversations are have already begun and in some ways um are they ready for me if i uh, uh, <laughs> there's yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's Black Lives Matter movement in, in Munich and Berlin and and all across Germany and Europe and um, the I think the classical music world, um, you know, they're in as much of a 
state of denial. There's a, there's an, uh, there's a severe denial here because um, there's an inability still to deal with colonialist history. And um, it's, uh, and it's because they haven't had to be held accountable in the same way that they were after World War II. Um, you know, I'm specifically thinking of, 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 of Germany here. Um, so, and holding people accountable is how they start to make changes, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's how they start to really acknowledging the truth and then, and then reconciling, moving on from it. So, um, I, or making an effort to at least. Um, so I'm very excited to, yeah, invest in this space, invest in this place, because I, I feel at home in my immediate home. <laughs> um, and with most of my immediate family, not all of them, but with most of them. But yeah, you asked about just the, the small things, the precious things in, in life that are uh, keeping me alive and um, yeah, thriving during this time. Um, I'm glad that I, I, I don't have to, I'm not worrying about survival right now. Um, That's good to hear. Yeah, and it's, I feel so, I am, sorry, it's not just a feeling, I am so fortunate um, uh, to not be plagued or concerned with day-to-day, -day because if you are plagued and concerned with day-to-day, -day, it's very hard to envision or think about anything beyond it. Um, and, you know, the question though, then it's like, <sighs> that I have to ask myself is like, okay, are you, are you also assisting? How are you able to assist more? Um, um, and, uh, yeah, I guess we can all be doing more. Um, <laughs> just saying this out loud so that I'm holding myself to it. Um, yeah, I, I just, I'm valuing being home. Before, before uh, the corona virus overtook the world, I was, yeah, having to think a lot about what home meant. And, you know, so often I just was saying, and believed and do still believe home is, you know, trying to create a home within oneself, that kind of um, safe space within yourself. And I think most days I was able to do that. But the truth of it is like I, um, I was still lacking. I, uh, yeah, inner, inner stability and was challenged a lot of days on the road and just trying to get by. You know, I think my performances, I was getting better as a singer and performer and um, all of that was continuing to grow. But there were a lot of things I was just sort of ignoring. And it's, it's, it's cool to now say like, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm healthier now. <laughs> I'm healthier now. <laughs> um, and I'm, I can be more honest now. You know, I'm sorry, it's just, I always find it really funny, not funny, when people are, you know, right about this authenticity that I have or whatever and this on, brutal honesty and, um, and of course, I'm, 
that's something I, I value greatly. But when you're a performer, it's very easy to put up various masks at various times. And, exactly. you know, um, I and you do it out of protection of oneself. But it's I'm glad that I can continue to lift veils and um, leave them. Um, and I, I, I think I've done more and more of that during this period. Um, and again, that's come with like legitimate, real legitimate, um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not, it's not just knowing of myself, like I'm feeling very safe and, um, um, more, yeah, stable, grounded and easy. <laughs> A little bit more at peace it's maybe a little more at peace and also when i'm not at peace it's just like okay let's just let's just wrestle with whatever's going on because it i actually am capable of wrestling with it and like i the my capacity to hold tension is huge um i would i need to practice letting the tension go that's the <laughs> you and me both oh my god you know, that's the real, that's the next thing. Your capacity to hold tension is great. Can you let it go? Or can you let it go? Well, it's the thing like when you get on the airplane, what's the first thing they say? Before you help someone with their mask, help yourself. put yours on yes, first. Exactly. And exactly. I think I think a lot of us in the arts, because we're so used to sharing things with others and putting ourselves and our vulnerable sides out there constantly we don't really assign our mask ourselves. We don't fix it ourselves first. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, I think all of us are struggling with yeah. that in some capacity. I mean, one, honest, one of the most beautiful things this year has been teaching. Um, I say teaching, but it's like, it doesn't even feel like that. I just feel like I'm, I'm engaging in such deep and wonderful exploration with young and younger singers um, and some who have are unsure of what they want their lives to be in music, some who have very clear visions for that. Um, and it's so, um, you know, at a, I've gone through various stages of, of thinking that I was going to have to quit singing, but it's so cool that, you know, a life in music is well beyond the performance of it for a public. And Absolutely. that's, it's a very deep, it's a it's a um, it's a deep investment, and it's um, it reaches in a lot of different places. So I'm so grateful grateful to know that for myself, and and feel genuinely uh, fulfilled, genuinely fulfilled. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that has been precious. That has been extraordinary, extraordinary. <laughs> I can relate. I mean, my students are. The, the highlight of my life mm. right now mm. and they have been for a while mm. and we just always try to make people's journeys a bit easier than we had and I th and it gets progressively easier with each generation of teacher student teacher student yeah, yeah. Um, well because we're, we're all learning from each other I think like the first exactly you know it's like and that's that's one thing that I feel so many teachers are saying really loudly it, you know it's like we are learning from each other <laughs> um, and just keeping it there. It's like not, not about these hierarchical structures and um, 
it's just person to person and that's yeah man talk about intimates intimacy oh my god um what an incredible exchange you know incredible cool i'm glad you're doing this i'm glad you're doing thank you i'm hopefully not that hard of a person to talk with about this kind of great person to speak to i'll talk to you soon okay you stay well Bye bye. Each work of art, each artist, each person is another brick laid upon the choices, voices, and experiences of the past. Join me next week as we continue our journey to uncover what's not there.